Good morning, everyone. Rescue me 
rescued me, oh Lord, because of your love, yeah, because of your love, oh Lord, rescue me. All right, good morning again. Can you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? I'll be right with you. I'm going to hang up this guitar. I'll be right back with you. Okay, uh, good uh, morning again. Could you turn your Bibles to, if you haven't done so already, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where, as you can see on the board, we're going to begin a new study uh, today in Ephesians 2, 15, a new verse. I began to study a new verse, and I think we're going to be on this verse for quite a while, because there is, again, what determines how long I stay on a verse is the content. So I think we're having, let's see, today is the first of one, two, three, four, five hours so we'll be on this almost two weeks, this verse. And again, the reason why I do that is uh, because of the content. There's a lot of stuff in there, and I, want to, I don't want to pass it by. So we'll be looking at that uh, t today, the first part, uh, the first uh, assertion in verse 15, uh, which teaches us that Jesus Christ nullified the law by means of his human nature. And so there's a couple of interpretive issues. One I touched on just at the end of the last class on Tuesday, I'll go back to it again and reiterate it. And, uh, and then there's another one with regards to the word karageo, the verb there, which I translate nullified and a lot of people do as well and what that all means in regards to the Mosaic Law. And so uh, that is going to be our study here today. And remember, um, for the, uh, the, um, uh, our class schedule, for those who are new to the ministry, where our Wenchin Bible Ministries is uh, an expository type ministry. We go through the different books of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, book by book. We alternate between Old Testament and New Testament. And we also do the different doctrines of the Christian faith, faith in between books. We put all of our material on wenstrom.org. All the written articles are up there in PDF format, the exegesis and exposition of all the books we've ever done and the doctrines that we've done and haven't done really uh, yet. And uh, also we have a Faith uh, Logos Sermons website. We have a lot of our MP3, MP4s are. We have podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music. Just search for us under Wednesday Bible Ministries. Our class schedule is Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. I'm located in Huntsville, Iowa. Huntsville, Iowa. <laughs> I lived in Iowa once, when, Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, the, uh, the address here is uh, 603 O'Shaughnessy Avenue North. This is what happens when you get old, you know. 603 O'Shaughnessy Avenue Northeast, Huntsville, Alabama, 35801. And if you want to send uh, a check to us, some people do that, or they pay, go through PayPal if they want to give to the ministry. You go to our website at wenstrom.org and there's a donate tab and you give through that way. And other people send checks. And also, I'm not only the pastor here at Winston Bible Ministries, which is primarily online now, although um, I do have people I, I, I interact with uh, in other ways that it, even though they're not face-to-face -face in front of me, I am, I am their pastor. And so I have people throughout the, the country and the world that uh, will contact me and, and phone calls or emails or whatever. And uh, so uh, I have this ministry and I also have Doctrinal Bible Church, 
uh, which is half mile down the road at 1215 Russell Street Northeast and Doctrinal Bible Church. The acronym we use is w, uh, DBC. And uh, so uh, we uh, have a class schedule there at, Wednes uh, at uh, Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We're doing on Wednesdays, we do the different doctrines of the Christian faith. And we do, uh, last night, we continue our study of the Day of the Lord. And then on Sundays, we have two sessions, one at 9.30, begins at 9.30. We have a break after that, usually about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour each class. And we're usually out of there before uh, uh, noon. And uh, we observe the Lord's Supper over there the first Sunday of each month. And here at Wednesday Bible Ministries, it's the first Saturday of, of each month. And so, uh, you know, if you're in the area, great town, Huntsville, I love it. And um, I'm very uh, thankful that the Lord brought me down here. I've got a great congregation down here, good, great leadership in the church. And uh, I have my little cottage here. But uh, they're building, they, you might hear some construction. They're going to build down the, down the end of the street, a day down the street. They're building, uh, I guess, townhouses, it said. I was nosy. I was asking, well, so what are you going to build there? It's like an empty lot there. And there's an empty lot in front of me. And I, I think, the same guy, the guy who owns that lot that he, he sold it, he's going to sell this one, or he already did. So they're going to put townhouses here, I think. So at least it's not, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Then I'd be tempted to go over there and have Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> it's not good for you, but I love it. <laughs> I haven't had it in a while. But uh, anyways, uh, so uh, that's uh, that's who we are, and glad to have you with us. Let's uh, take a moment to sign the prayer. This is our custom here. We take a moment to sign the prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3, 16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the grace, the faith, the salvation, your work on our behalf in eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the Cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. I just thank, uh, I just pray, Father, the Spirit would do a great and mighty work through us all today, through myself as the communicator, those in the audience, whether they're live or through the recordings. I thank you for each and every one of them. I thank you for the technology, the people taking advantage of it. I pray the technology would function properly. There'd be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I also pray through the Spirit, help your people to learn, understand, and apply what they're being taught, to concentrate, and please break down any barriers that the devil and his fellow evil spirits might put up that would hinder that from happening. And also, and making proper application, and to concentrate, as I said before, I also pray that you would help me, by the part of the Spirit as well, to concentrate and to uh, communicate your word with your full counsel to your people with regards to this first statement in Ephesians 2.15 that your son nullified the law by means of his human nature. I pray, Father, help me to do so with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment and all of us can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, as I said before, 
We're uh, going to look at the first, this is the first of five hours in Ephesians 2.15, again, which determines how long I stay on a verse is the content, and there's a lot of content in these verses in Ephesians. And uh, so uh, the first statement is, uh, that we're going to note in Ephesians 2.15 is that Jesus Christ nullified the law by means of his human nature. And as I said before, there's a couple of interpretive issues uh, in this verse that we need to discuss, one of which I've already covered, but I'll review it uh, at the beginning of this, uh, in this service today. Uh, because uh, it's related as, as to whether there's a certain prepositional phrase uh, that's, uh, is it go with verse 4, the verb there, or uh, verse 14, the verb there, that verse, or the verse 15, does it go with the verb at the beginning of that verse? Kartageo. So we're going to uh, go over that, and then there's another thing with regards to the meaning of kartageo and uh, in this verse. So what we're going to, uh, so quickly by way of review, for those who might be new to the study, there's always new people coming into our study because we're on online, so... Uh, we know that Ephesians was written by Paul uh, between 60 and 62 AD during his first Roman imprisonment, which he was released from that imprisonment. We know it's Paul. Uh, he identifies himself as the author. And of course, there are many people today, as I've addressed in the past, and they're wrong because it, uh, they think that uh, this was a pseudonymous letter. Somebody posing as Paul uh, was uh, writing this that revered Paul and wanted to increase his fame. Well, the church re rejected and the apostles rejected, Paul rejected pseudonymous writings. Uh, Irenaeus, and on baptism, he, they, he relates that they, uh, somebody was posing as Paul, writing to one of the churches, and they, de uh, they, uh, they, they removed him from the pulpit uh, because uh, they didn't tolerate that. Paul, uh, as we put it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he, in chapter 2, he was worried uh, some people had been uh, spreading a false doctrine that the day of the Lord had already taken place, and he said, even if a person allegedly writing from us should say so, it's not true. And then he talks about his authenticating mark at the end of the book, because why? He was afraid of soon people uh, impersonating him. So they didn't tolerate this. And it's incredible to me that in the, in the scholarly community in, in Christianity, that a lot of people go for that. And I just don't, they, you have to have some better evidence, boys and girls, than, than, than that. Uh, because he's, Paul's saying he's the author. And so it's kind of, you know, so why would he, and, and, they, and we know from his own um, writings in Second Thessalonians and Colossians, he, he wants them to, he doesn't, he doesn't tolerate the early church, the apostolic fathers, as I said before, they don't tolerate pseudonymous writings. And so the recipients of this letter, it's a circular letter, so the recipients of this letter are not only the Christians in Ephesus, uh, but also throughout the Roman province of Asia. We know this is a circular letter primarily because of the, the, the manuscript tradition. Uh, we have in the manuscript tradition in verse 1 of chapter 1, Ephesus, but the oldest and best manuscripts that we have don't have that. And so we know also from Colossians chapter 4, at the end of that book, Paul talks to the, says to the Colossians to read, uh, uh, read the epistle that he gave to the Laodiceans, and the Laodiceans will give their letter to them. And he wanted the exchange of letters. Well, the Laodicean letter appears to be Ephesians. We have a witness to that, though he was a, a heretic, Martian. Uh, he said he saw, read the contents of Ephesians, and he said it, said it was addressed to the Laodiceans. So uh, that is uh, quite interesting. And so a lot of scholars uh, believe that this was a circular letter. I'm not alone. I didn't come up with this, but it's just something we noted. One of the things that uh, contributes to this interpretation is also there's no personal greetings in the letter. Uh, Ephesians chapter, Acts chapter 18, 19 and 20 says Paul was in Ephesus for three years. So you would expect him to have personal greetings here. Though even though he knows a group uh, intimately, uh, he doesn't always in his letter give personal greetings. So 
you can't use that as the 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 main piece of evidence in saying that this is a circular letter. And so uh, we saw that uh, this letter, the pri- purpose of this letter, is to maintain unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians, uh, and, uh, and and by the means of obeying the command to love one another. And that's was, and we'll be talking. We talked about this in our introduction. So this is uh, where we. Uh, this is where we stand. We're now in Ephesians chapter two. I remember we in the after the initial identification of the author and the recipients of this letter in chapter one, verse one, and the personal and the greeting there in verse two. Then in verses three through fourteen, we have the great prologue to this letter, which has a triadic pattern not only in verse three but also throughout those verses. Uh, the work of the Father is mentioned in verses three through six in eternity past in election and predestination. The work of the Son at the cross in redemption in verses 7 through 12 is mentioned. And the work of the Spirit at justification through the sealing ministry of the Spirit in verses 13 and 14 is mentioned. And that the, the contents of that make clear that the recipients are actually uh, believers in union with Christ have been declared justified through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And if you compare that with Ephesians 2.11, they're Gentile Christians. Because that's Paul identifies the recipients of this letter in Ephesians 2, 11, that they're Gentile believers. So he's concerned about uh, the unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. He makes that, uh, he talks about this concern in, in Romans, a book that we studied in great detail, over 500 hours. And uh, so he's concerned about this. And so uh, we see that, um, that uh, he wants that unity to be maintained experientially through the practice of the command of love one another and all that involves. They have it positionally through the baptism of the Spirit of justification, and they also have it, will have it in a, in a perfective sense in a resurrection body, the rapture, resurrection of the church. So today, uh, we begin the first of five hours in Ephesians 2.15, uh, which we constitutes the 112th class in this series. Uh, in chapter 2, and uh, to, to, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through t- uh, 10, Paul talks about uh, the, uh, despite the fact that they would, this Gentile Christian community would dead in their sins and transgressions and slaves of the devil and sin nature, uh, God uh, has raised them, made them alive with Christ and raised them up and seated with them with Christ, despite the fact that they were spiritually dead and because of their transgressions and enslaved to the devil and his cosmic system. And he wants to accentuate the grace of God in the lives of the Gentile Christian community in those verses. Then in verses 11 through 22, the, this passage that we're working on now, this pericope, uh, Paul is talking about the new humanity uh, that uh, was brought about through the creative work of Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit, of course. But uh, he, we see that uh, the emphasis on Jesus Christ as the personification of peace between the two races and the two races with God. So uh, we see that... Uh, uh, there's a lot of implications, and I've been bringing them out with regards to this passage. At, at the moment of justification, and through the baptism of the Spirit, Jewish and Gentile believers are united not only with the Lord Jesus Christ and identified with Him in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father, but also they're united to each other. And you can compare that with Romans chapter 11, that great chapter, where the Gentiles are the wild olive branch, and we've been engrafted contrary to nature, emphasizing the supernatural and the uh, nature of this uh, union between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. The olive tree is Israel in that passage. And, uh, and so we're united to them through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification with those Jewish believers, the Jew- Jewish remnant in the church. 
So this is the new humanity, and this is important because remember, uh, God is trying to restore humanity as the ruler over the works of his hands. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he created Adam and Eve, humanity to rule over the works of his hands. But as, as the writer of Hebrews, and I believe it was Paul in Hebrews chapter 2 says, we don't see that being the case. And because uh, if you compare scripture with scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the temporarily the God of this world. 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world is under his power. He deceives the entire world, Revelation 12. And he offered up the kingdoms of this world to Jesus at his temptation. Jesus emphatically rejected him. And we know we noted that that temptation would not be legitimate if he didn't have that kind of authority. And he does. So, uh, Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father is the first step and actually the basis for which he will restore human beings over the works of his hands during the millennial reign of his son. Now, during the church age, which began on June of 33 AD on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, among Jewish believers, they have received the baptism of the Spirit. And then Gentile believers, in Acts chapter 10, with Cornelius and his family, the Roman centurion, Gentile believers received the Holy Spirit as well at that time. And that's according to the, the promises of the new covenant. Not only forgiveness of sins was stipulated in that covenant, but also the new covenant. And we benefit from the new covenant as Gentiles, even though we weren't given that covenant, the Jews were, we got benefit from it because of our union identification with Jesus Christ. And so uh, we see that that uh, the, uh, the, the, the church is composed of two races, Jewish and Gentile believers, and we constitute the new humanity. So every time uh, that uh, someone in the church age, which ends with the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which is imminent, every time someone, whether Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female, whoever you are, whatever race you are, whatever ethnicity, language group you belong to, you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, you are part of the new humanity. You're the member of the body of Christ now, and you're the, uh, you're the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the church being the bride of Christ. And we with Jesus, will reign over this earth for a thousand years over the works of God's hands. The, the curse will be lifted at that time. And Satan will be in prison for a thousand years. Uh, and uh, so we will have perfect environment and no devil and no war. There will be peace reigning through, because of the, uh, the Prince of Peace who gives peace to the soul through faith in himself and peace to the nations of this earth uh, through his second, his second advent and millennial reign. So, with that introduction out of the way, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, the whole chapter and then in, in the Net Bible, and then we'll read it from my translation before we dig into Ephesians 2.15. So it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, I'll have it here up on the board for you. Again, I'm reading from the Net Bible. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives and the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one could boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly, you, the Gentiles, 
who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that is, performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who used to be far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one, and who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Why? Because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole, Christ Jesus, the whole building being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now let's look at my translation of this same chapter before we look at verse 15, begin to look at it in detail. Ephesians 2, 2 1 on the board, my translation. Now, correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts, which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who were objects of wrath because of their natural condition from birth. So, as we pointed out, those three verses are, are setting us up to accent, Paul's going to accentuate the grace of God here and what he did for us at our justification through the baptism of the Spirit and raising us up and seating us with Christ despite the fact that as those verses tell us in verses 1 through 3 we were enslaved to sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. So now we have verse 4. But God, because of his, because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us in the Christian community, even though each and every one of us as a corporate unit were spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit is saved because of grace, specifically because he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Specific, correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union identification with Christ, that last prepositional phrase at the end of verse 6, we see it quite a bit uh, in him, in whom, uh, in the beloved, uh, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. It, it, many times, as you can see in my translation thus far, 
uh, as we'll see in this translation of chapter 2, and we saw it in verse 1, when he talks about, it's shorthand, these prepositional phrases, shorthand for the believer's faith in Jesus at justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit, which also took place at justification. So because of those things, we are blessed and we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's because of those things, justification, baptism of the Spirit, that we united us Gentile believers with Jewish believers. So that's the, uh, uh, the, uh, why I interpret it the way I do. It has the figure of metonymy in it, where the person of Christ is actually put for his uh, being justified through faith in him and, and identified and united with him through the baptism of the Spirit. So then it says in verse 7, he did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace policy, because of kindness, for the benefit of each and every one of us, because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit, are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It never originated from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting for each and every one of us are his creative workmanship for each and every one of us in the Christian community has been created by means of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Now we get into verses 11 through 22. Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly, each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision, by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise which is the product of the covenants, messianic promise. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, because of your faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you in the Gentile Christian community as a corporate unit who formerly were far away have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace. Namely, by causing both groups to be one. Specifically, by destroying the wall which served as the barrier that is which caused hostility between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself for justification, and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. So you can see again, with that prepositional phrase, I am being more interpretive with my translation, more explicit. I can view that because I'm your interpreter, and uh, translation committees don't, and the modern translations wouldn't do this. So it's up, they leave it up to the interpreter, and I am your interpreter. So then it says, Thus he caused peace to be established between the two races and the two with God. Verse 16, we have him saying, Paul says, in other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God, that being the Father, of course, through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility between the two races and the two with God, that hostility being the law. 
by means of, he did this by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the spirit at justification. Correspondingly, he, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who are far off, like, likewise peace to those who are near, the Jews. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you in the Gentile Christian community as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. Why? Verse 20, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation which is the communication of the gospel to each one of you by the apostles, as well as prophets, that being the New Testament prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. On the basis of its being continually fitted, inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union identification with him, all of you, without exception, are, note the present tense, are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So uh, you might be saying, why you read so much scripture? You know, that's, that's what commanded to. Those who did, read the, did the pastoral epistles with me, Paul commanded Timothy to be devoted to the public reading of scripture. Not enough churches do that. In fact, I remember one time when I first had my first church plant in Iowa, a friend of mine came and he, he couldn't believe it. I read the whole chapter of Romans 6 one time. And he was flabbergasted because his pastor never did that. And uh, that's wrong. Uh, so I do it for a couple of reasons. To get us familiar with what we're reading, to study, get you to look at it and study it. And it can't hurt to read it over and over again. Second of all, I'm trying to follow the context. I'm trying to interpret our verse today, Ephesians 2.15, in the context in which it's found, which means we're looking back at the past immediate preceding context and forward and that's how you keep away from error the false teachers the false uh, people who teach false doctrine the cults they take verses out of context so there's a principle of hermeneutics the study and the art of uh, interpreting and we need to pay attention to context we do that and when we read emails read the newspaper or whatnot or read a legal document whatever it is read our lease we understand the genre we're reading in and we pay attention to context and so we see that today, in the first of five hours in Ephesians 2.15, as I said before, we're going to be studying the fact that Jesus Christ nullified the law by means of his human nature. Now, uh, like Ephesians 2.14, Ephesians 2.15 contains three assertions. And the first of these assertions, as, uh, and I'm reading from off the Nestle Alan 28th edition text, Greek text of the New Testament. It, the first uh, particular assertion is Ansarki Altu, Tan, nomon, tone, antolon, and dogmasin, katagesas. And that's translated by myself. In other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws. Uh, the net Bible goes, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments in decrees. All right. Now, the second assertion in verse two, uh, Ephesians 2.15 is hina tus duo ketise and alto ace hena kinon anthropon, which is a purpose clause, as we'll see, it's translated by myself in order that he might cause the two 
to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. The Net Bible translates it as he did this to create himself one new man out of two. And then the final assertion is uh, poion arenein, which is translated by myself, thus he caused peace to be established. And that peace is between the two races and the two races with God. The Net Bible translates it, uh, thus making peace. So we see the first of these three assertions, uh, which we're going to look at today, is in the form of a participial clause, which presents the specific means by which Jesus Christ personifies the peace that now exists between Jewish and Gentile Christian communities and God and these two groups amongst themselves. It states that Jesus Christ personifies this peace by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws. The second assertion, as we just read, presents the purpose of Jesus Christ, the Hena Purpose Clause. This second assertion presents the purpose of Jesus Christ doing this. And it states that he did so in order that he might cause these two groups to be created into one new humanity. How did he do this? Well, he did it by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at their justification. And the third and final uh, assertion in Ephesians 2.15, as we read, is also in the form of a participial clause in the Greek text. It presents the result of Jesus Christ causing these two groups to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. It states, uh, this last assertion in verse 15, it states that he caused, Jesus Christ caused peace to exist between the two races and God and peace between these two groups, two, two groups, Jew and Gentiles, in relation to each other. Now, as we noted, the first assertion presents the specific means by which Jesus Christ personifies the peace that now exists between Jewish and Gentile Christian communities and God and these two groups in relation to each other. As we pointed out, it states that Jesus Christ personifies this peace by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws. Now, as I pointed out in our last class, and I touched upon it at the very end, there's an interpretive issue that's uh, related to the, uh, the two verses, verses 14 and 15, how they relate to each other. So as we pointed out in the last class, this interpretive issue concerns the function of the prepositional phrase ente sarki autu. Here it is in the Greek text, and this is the transliteration. Now, as I pointed out in the last class, some translations and expositors interpret it as modifying the verb kartageo, which is translated when he nullified it in the Net Bible. And that verb kartageo in the Net Bible is appearing in verse 15. On the other hand, some interpret it as modifying the verb luo, which is translated who destroyed, which appears in verse 14. So this prepositional phrase that we have here, in his flesh, some uh, believe that it goes with this word who destroyed, luo, right here, translated uh, who destroyed, and others, like myself, believe it goes with he nullified, kartageo. And so uh, we, uh, I believe, and I pointed this out in the last class, I believe that this prepositional phrase belongs with verse 15, and most modern translations do as well, and is thus modifying the verb kartageo. Why do I believe this? See, I'm not going to just tell you, give me my opinion without, there's got to be a reason why I'm doing this, and that's why a lot of people, you know, I, I try to be uh, conscientious. I, I want people to be... Uh, 
use their mind. You're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we need to think. And why do we believe what we believe? Just don't believe it because I said it. But or anybody, I don't care how, if he's got degrees all over the place and he knows the Greek text and, and the Hebrew text and Aramaic or the Old Testament, <coughs> that's great. But uh, he better be able to interpret correctly and just, just don't bre- uh, b- uh, believe what he says based simply upon his his credentials as, a, as that he got a degree somewhere. Because a lot of guys who get degrees places and they're terrible in interpreting. They're all over the place and teaching false doctrine, amazingly. But you I, and don't believe because I say it. And just because I'm on the internet doesn't mean I'm, leg, I could be, I'm legit. I could be a phony. I could be fake. So you got to have to check out what I teach. Use your brain. You got a responsibility. You don't just believe everything I say. You believe it if you have, I presented the evidence to you and that the Holy Spirit is saying yes and confirming it. So you have the spirit, I got the spirit, and if I if I'm wrong, then you don't have any reason why you should just believe just what I because I say it, and that's wrong. <clears throat> I see a lot of Christians, and I came from a wing of Christianity. Whatever the pastor said, you know, you never questioned that. Well, you know, uh, I have a problem with that. Um, I have no problem. You know, I know you have to respect the authority of your pastor, but that doesn't mean I have to blindly believe uh, an interpretation. Uh, just because he says it is. If I'm not convinced by it, then I have no. I have every right to say no. I don't. I'm not convinced by it. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it unless he's teaching false doctrine. Okay. So uh, we need to pay attention to. Uh, uh, we have to give our reasons why I'm going to translate certain things a certain way. In fact, if you go to my written articles on our websites at wenchnum.org or academy.edu, and you read the exegesis and exposition of this verse when it gets up there, and I think it's already up there for, I put it up there for academy.edu, EDU, but I go into great detail, okay, because I'm trying to be conscientious of what I'm doing, and I'm trying to grow as a, as, an, as a Christian, as an interpreter, and I like to, the guys I learn the most from, the guys who give me reasons why they believe what they believe, and, 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 and note these interpretive issues. Now, a lot of Christians don't want to do that, just give me whatever, Lord, you know, you know just give me it. And I don't, I don't want to de- have to think and think too much. You know, well, okay. I find that, uh, I find that being uh, not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're not using your brain. You want to veg out. And, you know, you want to go and think this is, go, when you walk, listen to me, this is a Netflix, okay? You're going to have to think. If you don't like it, you're not going to leave. You're going to leave and go somewhere else where you don't have to think and you just veg out and accept whatever the guy says, even if it's false doctrine. You're going to be held accountable for that. Like he's going to be, and I am. So, I hear to this view that this what view? Well, the phrase "in his flesh," which in the Greek text, as we pointed out, is "ente sarki autu," and I believe it belongs with verse fifteen. So does that Bible and many modern translations, uh, and it goes with modifying "kartageo," which the Net Bible translates "when he nullified." Now, I adhere to this view. Why? Well, because it's consistent with Paul's writings in other places, in which he states that the believer is not under the law, but is dying to the law because of their identification with Jesus Christ and his death, and that Christ fulfilled the law. Uh, did, look at Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. We start, touched upon this in the last class. Look at Romans 7, 1. Romans chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, the Jews, that the law is lord over a person as long as he lives. For now he's using marriage as an analogy uh, in relation to the person, the, the Christian's union identification with Christ. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives under the law. 
But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of the marriage and she's not under the husband's authority. So then, if she is joined to another man while her husband is alive, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she is joined to another man, she's not an adulteress. Now he's making the he's going to make the application here, the significance of this. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Notice that? The body of Christ. Ento, ente sarki autu. Christ's flesh is what Paul ta- calls it in Ephesians 2.15. So, you could be joined to another, this is why, to the one who, raised, who was raised from the dead to bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful desires aroused by the law were active in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, we've been released from the law because we've died to what controlled us so that we may serve uh, in the new life of the Spirit and not under the old written code. So in other words, when we died with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit and our justification, uh, that means that we're, no longer, we're not under the authority of the law. Neither is the Jewish Christian, neither is the Gentile Christian. Now there's some things that carry over the Mosaic Law into the New Testament, but uh, the law is not to govern the life of the church. In fact... And Gentiles are not supposed to be acting like Jews. I had a person I knew, he's a brother in Christ, and he thought, he, you know, he dressed like a rabbi, carried on with his Hebrew Bible, and he thought he had to be, live like a Jew. And he was a Gentile. And, and Paul, in the early, the first church council, the first church council was about this. Should a Gentile believer in Jesus that's received the baptism of the Spirit, Acts 15, this is what the first church council came about, must they act like the Jews? Do they have to be under the law? Do they have to be, are they uh, liable uh, to be held under the law? The early church council, Peter, James, and John said no. (laughs) Because they couldn't keep it, the Jews. And so why why would we want to put the yoke of of the bondage of the law on the Gentiles? So we're not under the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. And therefore, he did what we couldn't do. So we're not under the law. In fact, Christ in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul says Christ is the substantive reality of the law. He is the law, okay? And we are now united with him, died, raised, seated with him, okay? Very important we understand these things because a lot of Christians, amazingly, are getting into some terrible stuff, you know, walking around as rabbis when they're Gentiles. Now, uh, the noun socks, human nature. Uh, we can translate it uh, human, uh, human nature. And the modern translations translate it flesh. That's what it means, but I'm being more explicit here, more interpretive. In human nature, which is what they mean by the flesh. So the noun sarx is the object of the preposition and what I tra- which I translate as by means of. And that indicates the reason why, because I believe this prepositional phrase indicates the means, by the, that by means of his impeccable human nature. The Lord Jesus Christ nullified the law of commandments consisting of a written code of laws. So if you look at my translation of verse 15 again, I'll show it to you on the boards. In other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself at justification and unite identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Again, the figure of metonymy is being used there in that final prepositional phrase. So, the implication of this phrase by means of his human nature or as the net bible has it in his flesh in verse 15 the implication is that by becoming a human being the son of god was able to nullify the mosaic law in the sense of fulfilling it perfectly and suffering the consequences of sinners like you and i not obeying it and which law 
was the cause of the hostility between the Jewish and Gentile races, as we pointed out in our last class. So this use of sarks, flesh, as referring to the impeccable human nature of Jesus Christ appears often in the New Testament for his impeccable human nature. John 1.14, Romans 1.3, 8.3, 9.5, Colossians 2.22, Hebrews 5.7, 10.20, 1 Peter 3.18, 1 Peter 4.1, 1 John 4.2, and 2 John 2.7 uh, for documentation. So the articular form of the articular masculine singular form of the noun nomos, which is, means law, speaks of the Mosaic law system, which was composed of a system of laws, civil statutes, and priestly ordinances, which revealed the will of God for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, who are in a covenant relationship with God. Then we have the word entele. We have the articular genitive feminine plural form of this word. It means the commandments. And it refers, its reference is the 613 written doc, uh, commandments of the Mosaic law, which are composed of both commands and prohibitions. And the word dogma, uh, a written code of laws, is in the date of neuter plural form here in this verse, it also refers to the 613 mandates which appear in, in written form in the Mosaic Law, but from a diff, different perspective than entelay, the commandments. It signifies, this word uh, dogma, it signifies that these various commands and prohibitions appear as a written code of laws which the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, the other interpretive issue that I pointed out at the beginning of this class, we've noted the first one, the other one, and I mentioned it early again as well, is over the verb regarding the meaning of the word kartageo. So if you look at the Net Bible, it says, when he nullified, there's the, the tra nullified is translating that word kartageo. Let me show you some other modern translations and how they translate it. The ESV, uh, they translate uh, the word kartageo, uh, abolishing. All right, and let me give you another one. Uh, let's say uh, the Lexham Bible. Another great translation, invalidating the law of commandments. That's interesting translation as well. And it's a difficult one to translate. Uh, the NRSV, uh, they translate it abolished as well. And then we, I'll give you one more, the NIV 84, abolishing. So we have uh, different uh, translations. Let's do another one, the New Living Translation. Uh, what do they say? Ending this system of law. They, so they translate it ending. That's interesting as well. And one more. I'll promise one more. One last one. Uh, the, the New English Bible annulled the law. I, I, I lied. One more. Because <laughs> this is kind of interesting. I'm trying to kind of show you what's, what's going on here. There's no consensus on what this word means. Abolished. Okay? So it's difficult. It's a difficult translation issue. But uh, don't worry. We can get to the bottom of it. And uh, so is, what does cartel get on mean? Well, I believe that this verb actually means, like the Net Bible is translating it, to nullify, rather than set aside. Why? Well, what? How do I? Where do I get that? Well, it's indicated. I believe it's indicated by the fact that Paul uses the word in the context of the hostility, which the Mosaic law caused between the Jewish and Gentile races. Now, in context, Paul's not speaking of the law as to how it relates to the conduct of Jewish and Gentile believers, but rather the hostility that was caused by the Mosaic law. So therefore, and we just pay attention to the context, I would say that this verb, karageo, expresses the idea that Jesus Christ, by means of his impeccable human nature, nullified, quote-unquote, the Mosaic law, which was the cause of hostility between Jew and Gentile races, as well as hostility between these two groups and God. 
He, how, so in what way did he nullify the law? And we, you know, we talked about this in previous classes. Uh, Jesus Christ, his, his, his suffering the wrath of God on the cross with his substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths. Substitutionary spiritual, meaning he lost fellowship with his father when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Trinity wasn't disrupted. His, simply the, his hypostatic union wasn't affected one iota. It was this fellowship that was the father and the son always had. This is what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking for the cup, of, his cup that he was supposed to drink of wrath, that it might pass. Nevertheless, not his will, but the will of the Father. And the, it was the will of the Father that he suffered the wrath of God so that we in the human race wouldn't suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever. We all, he also suffered the wrath of God in a physical sense. And, uh, and that he suffered the scourgings, the cru crucifixion, the physical death, and the torture of it. Okay, Now he's basically suffering hell for us on the cross. That's what he did so that we wouldn't have to suffer eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. That's exactly what he did. And the worst thing for him was being abandoned by his father. They always had, we, no one will be able to identify with that. That's the greatest act of love between those two you'll ever see. And the spirit, he offered himself up to the eternal spirit. How do we know that? Well, he's quoting what the spirit says in the Old Testament as he was going through the, the crucifixion, suffering the wrath of God. And he did it because he loves us. That's how much he loves you. How much do you think the father and the son valued their fellowship with each other? We couldn't identify with that. It must have been horrible for them. And look at that tr tremendous sacrifice they did for us, all because of us sinners, when we were their enemies. So don't tell me God is cruel and blame the world for the way it is. No, the world's the way it is because human beings are sinners and the devil and his angels have rebelled against God as well. Now, God's not the problem in the world. We are. And the devil and his angels are the problem. Stop blaming God. Learn your Bible and you'll find out. And first step is trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're a sinner by nature of practice. You know you're in trouble. And so when you die, yeah, you should fear death if you haven't believed in Jesus as your Savior. Because you will suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire. So he doesn't want you to go there. That's why he sent the Son of the Cross for everyone. And that's why I, I think it's terrible that we even, when we, people who treat, uh, teach limited atonement, how terrible that is. And people don't think it's a big deal. I think it's terrible because what you're saying is that Christ just died for the elect, the believers, and not the unbelievers. Where does that say? I don't, you have to do, you're, you're hanging on to a theological construct that's not found through exegesis, that's eisegesis. He died for everyone. Well, never, that, you know, they don't understand the extent to which Christ died for us. He died for his enemies. Did he not? And we were all his enemies. There's some of his enemies that believed in him and have become born again and saved. Others have stayed children of the devil. So he, we, he died for everyone. That's how much he loves you and cares for you. So, you know, your wife or your husband not, not love you anymore or your parents or your children or your friends and you might get abandoned, thrown out by your church, uh, you know, throw you, uh, have a church, but throw you out the door. You know, people can hate you, vilify you. You can be slandered and all that. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what those people say. What does God think about you and I? Well, my Bible says he loves you and he proved it. He didn't just talk about it. He did something about it my condition and your condition and all of our condition in the human race. So, Jesus, he nullified the law in the sense that he made the law legally null and void or to make of no consequence. The, remember, the inauguration of the new covenant 
was among the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem in approximately 33 AD. We see that in Acts chapter 2. It manifested itself with the gift of the Spirit for those Jews who trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, which resulted also in the forgiveness of sins. And it manifested itself, according to Acts chapter 10, among Gentile believers with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family. And this inauguration of the new covenant, which was based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross, according to 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, marked the end of the Mosaic Law. And this is what Paul taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We don't have time to go and read that. Go read it on your own, and you'll see that. So the Lord Jesus Christ, we pointed this out in our previous classes, the Lord Jesus Christ nullified the law in a twofold sense. During his first advent, he fulfilled the law perfectly by always obeying the law's various commands and prohibitions. Two, he suffered the wrath of God on the cross, as I said before, in the place of every member of the human race, unlimited atonement. Every member of the human race who violates these commands and prohibitions of the law, Christ suffered the consequences for these people who violated the law, which is all of us. In other words, our Lord, the incarnate Son of God, lived a life of perfect obedience to the law, which was required by the law, in order to possess a relationship and a fellowship with the Holy God. Secondly, our Lord suffered the penalty required by the law for those who violate these commands and prohibitions. And the implication being that Jesus Christ, through the, His incarnation, counteracted completely the force, effectiveness, or value of the Mosaic Law. So that's how he nullified the law, which was the problem that existed between, caused the problem between the Jewish and Gentile communities. So the participle conjugation of this verb karageo functions as a participle of means. So that would indicate that this word identifies the means by which Jesus Christ not only personifies the peace that exists between Gentile and Jewish Christian communities, as well as the peace that now exists between these two groups and God, but also how or by what means he caused both groups to be one single entity. So in Colossians 2.17, Paul taught the Colossian Christian community that Jesus Christ is the substantive reality of the various systems of law, system of laws, civil statutes, and priestly ordinances which appear in the law. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul teaches that the Father's purpose for His Son's physical death was so that the righteous requirement of the law, i.e. perfect obedience, might be fulfilled in those Christians who conduct themselves in submission to the Spirit rather than the sin nature. So this first assertion in Ephesians 2.15 is actually echoed in Colossians 2.14. It says there, He has destroyed, Jesus has, what was against us. What's that? The law. A certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us, he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. So, we talk about salvation. He saved us from what? The wrath of God, condemnation of God, the eternal condemnation of the lake of fire. He saved us from enslavement to sin and Satan his cosmic system, personal sins, physical and spiritual death, and condemnation from the law. So he fulfilled it perfectly, and he suffered the consequences perfectly by suffering the wrath of God on the cross. The law has been nullified. So it can't condemn us. And it also, what Paul's talking in context about, it, not, it is no longer a cause for the Jewish and Gentile communities to not interact with each other. Remember, the, the dietary regulations of the law prohibited the Jew 
from eating the various foods and animals that God called unclean. He called them unclean because they were involved in the worship that the Canaanites were involved in. And so when God sent Israel in there to dispossess the Canaanites, he didn't want them to engage and eat the food that was devoted, that was um, part of the worship of demons, really, of, of idols. And so therefore, he that's why he stipulated that certain animals are clean and certain animals are unclean. So that, therefore, Peter and other Jews of the day would never go into a Gentile's house. Acts chapter 10, God had given Peter a vision three times to say he could eat all foods. The implication was you can go to the Gentile's home, in which was Cornelius, to give him the gospel. Because now God says I've, all, all foods are clean now. You can eat all foods. And so uh, that uh, was now, Jesus talked about this in Mark 7. And this was the issue in, in Romans 14. So these dietary regulations would keep the Jews from interacting with the Gentiles. Okay, So there was hostility. The Jews had, and we'll talk about this as we go further, the Jews in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, of course, it was a subject of, it became an arrogance. Yeah, they instead of, would, instead of being a testimony and to lead the Jews, the Gentiles, to saving knowledge of the Messiah, Jesus, it drove the Gentiles away, this law, because the Jews figured, well, we get the law, the Gentiles don't, so we're better than them. And other things were related to that. So all of that's been blown away, nullified by what Jesus did on the cross. And he did it again, and the Father sent him there to do it, to love us, he loves us, but also he wants to have a new humanity, a union with his son, married to his son, reigning over the over the works of his hands and during the millennial reign of Christ. So one of these things when you lay down tonight and you get, put your head in the pillow or you take a little nap this afternoon, thank God for that, okay? Another thing to thank God for. Well, we've just begun to scratch the service with uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. We'll pick this up on Saturday, Lord willing, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. And so thank you for joining us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you and praise you for destroying the hostility uh, that the, the, the law caused between Jewish and Gentile communities. And we just thank you that uh, we're part of the bride of Christ, the future uh, uh, body of Christ, the future bride of Christ, and we're going to reign with Jewish believers in the millennium with your son, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you and praise you for, we can't thank you enough, Father. So help us to use these things that we're learning to uh, motivate us to live the spiritual life and to keep short accounts with you, confess our sins when necessary and obey you and continue to persevere as we go through various trials and tribulations, which we must go through if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven and receive a great reward at the Bema seat. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.